There we go. All right, I want to begin the second lesson, although we, we never finished the first. Uh, and in light of that, I wouldn't be surprised if this was more than a six-week miniseries, which would be fine. Um, second lesson, I want to begin uh, by reading Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And uh, for any of you who might have questions as to the abiding validity of the Sabbath, uh, just think about its importance in the creation of the world. This is what we read, the end of the creation week, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Well, what I want to do, that that really was the prelude to lesson two, which it's going to take a bit of time before we even get to that. I want to finish lesson one. And Sunday school, unlike preaching, this is uh, part of the joy of Sunday school, it's also part of the frustration, is you can prepare a lesson, but then you may not finish it, and I have my second lesson here waiting on me, but who knows if we'll even get to it today, Uh, but we'll just keep working through these lessons I've prepared, and there will be about six, but we'll see how many it takes us to get actually through them, so uh, there is a more open-ended nature. Uh, When we come to the more practical side. So there's going to be teaching, doctrine, foundation, and then practical. The practical, I, I really want that to be more open-ended and, and I, will, I plan to have actually even discussion questions at that point. But even now I'm open to questions and comments. So where, where we left off was this, I love the Lord's Day. And we just passed out the remaining copies if you don't have last week's copy. Uh, and you, you may have remembered, I feel like this is still too loud. Um, you may, you may, may have remembered that I said that from John Meather's little uh, article, I don't even remember what it's called now. I have it right here. The Sabbath Plausibility for Presbyterian Pilgrims. He argued that uh, in the 19th century, that is the 1800s, the Presbyterians, as the Sabbath was being lost in the western frontier, and evangelistic activity was spreading westward, and that, that land was called the land beyond the Sabbath, Presbyterians in the 19th century were the foremost uh, defenders of the Sabbath, trying to maintain the Sabbath, not just on a personal level, but actually on a national level. Uh, and... and you find the same thing in Scotland. Robert Murray McShane is defending the Sabbath in his own home country, Scotland, uh, combating, and I don't know the exact details, but the presence of uh, a rail, railway running on Sundays. Something like that. And I think it even says something in, in the beginning. The daring attack that is now made by some of the directors of the Edinburgh and Glasgow Railway on the law of God and the peace of our Scottish Sabbath. And you even notice that, our Scottish Sabbath. <laughs> what do we speak of it that way? I, I, well, I, I'm, I'm somewhat charmed by that, but I also am aware of the dangers. Uh, the blasphemous motion which they mean to propose to the shareholders in February next 
and the wicked pamphlets which are now being circulated in thousands full of all manner of lies and impieties. This, he says, calls loudly for the calm, deliberate testimony of all faithful ministers and private Christians in behalf of God's holy day. In the name of all God's people in this town and in this land, I commend to your dispassionate consideration the following. And what he's arguing for is, I didn't read the first sentence, and this is entitled, I Love the Lord's Day. And, and, and by the way, that I mean, I've had this out on the book table for a while. I read this many, many years ago. Uh, in the memoirs and remains of Robert Murray McShane, that's sort of standard reading for a younger minister. But I was especially struck by this. But just think of the title, I Love the Lord's Day. And I think that's a wonderful testimony. And it's the kind of thing that I would love for the members of this church to be able to say with their mouths and with their lives. But what does loving the Lord's Day involve? He says in the first sentence, As a servant of God in this dark and cloudy day, I feel constrained to lift up my voice in behalf of the entire sanctification of the Lord's Day. And you remember, what is the fourth commandment? Remember, I told you, I I asked people that. They asked me about my Sabbath practice. I say, well, could you tell me what the fourth commandment is? Just as a starting point. Uh, in order to respond to their skepticism, I want to see if they even know what it is. What is the fourth commandment? Just the first line. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath day to keep it holy. He's saying the, the entire sanctification of the Lord's day. That is precisely what the fourth commandment is. It is the keeping of the entire day holy. And so what he's arguing for isn't radical. It is of the very spirit of the fourth commandment. And really the only question is not what does the fourth commandment mean? It obviously means that. The question which we can answer, uh, I don't think today, but we will answer is to what extent that has abiding validity in the new covenant. But so he says, I love the Lord's day. And he's lifting up his voice to defend the Lord's day. Just as he, we're not going to get this far, but when he gets to the word of exhortation, uh, he, he, he says, prize the Lord's day, but then he says, defend the Lord's day. And that's what he's doing here. He's taking his own advice. Lift up a calm, undaunted testimony against the profanation of the Lord's day. Now, he, he goes even beyond what I think I would do. He says, use all your influence to defend the entire Lord's day. This duty is laid upon you in the fourth commandment. Uh, now, where is it? Uh... Oh, there it is. I didn't underline it. Never see the Sabbath broken without reproving the breaker of it. <laughs> that's, what, that's what he means anyways by, by loving the Lord's Day. Um, as I say, this is one of my favorite articles. I, I would never... If you're skeptical about the Sabbath, at least read this article. This is my favorite defense of the Lord's Day. He loves it. Why do we love it? We love it for three reasons. We love it because it is the Lord's Day. I mean, to me, that seals the deal right there. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Revelation 1.10. It is His by example, McShane says. It is the day on which He rested from His amazing work of redemption, speaking of Christ and His resurrection. Just as God rested on the seventh day from all His works, whereas... God bless, uh, wherefore, God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. 
skip, I'm skipping through just giving you some highlights. The Lord's Day is His property. Just as the Lord's Supper, be, uh, just as the Lord's Supper is supper belonging to Christ, it is His table. He is the bread. He is the wine. He invites His guests. He fills them with joy and with the Holy Ghost. So it is with the Lord's Day. All days of the year are Christ, but He hath marked out one in seven as per- peculiarly uh, His own. This is the reason why we love it and would keep it entire. We love everything that is Christ's. We love his house. Skipping down, we love his table. We love his people because they're his. And we love the Lord's day because it is his. Every hour of it. And this is where he says dispassionate uh, consideration. But, but uh, I don't know if you can read this dispassionately. And we may boldly say that the man... That that man does not love the Lord Jesus Christ who does not love the entire Lord's Day. Oh, Sabbath breaker, whoever you be, you are a sacrilegious robber when you steal the hours of the Lord's Day for business or for your pleasure. You are robbing Christ of the precious hours which he claims as his own. We love it. I'm not, go- I'm not going to read any more quotes, but we also love it because it is a relic of paradise and a type of heaven. I guess I'll read one quote. This is the reason why we love the Lord's Day. This is the reason why we call the Sabbath a delight. A well-spent Sabbath we feel to be a day of heaven upon earth. Do you abhor a holy Sabbath? Is it a kind of hell to you to be with those who are strict in keeping the Lord's Day? You say, behold, what weariness it is. When will the Sabbath be gone that we may sell corn? That's a quote, by the way, from Nehemiah. Oh, soon, very soon, and you will be in hell. Hell is the only place for you. Heaven is one long, never-ending, holy Sabbath. There are no Sabbaths in hell. And we love it, number three, because it is a day of blessing. And so he exhorts us to prize the Lord's Day and to defend the Lord's Day. And he closes with serious questions, the first of which uh, harkens back to what he said under the first reason we love it, because it's the Lord's Day. No one loves Christ who does not love his day, he says. Well, now he says this. Can you na- and this really stuck with me. I've always thought of this. Tangible holiness. I'm going to preach about this tonight. Holiness is not this generic feeling or spirit. It is tangible. Can you name one godly minister or any denomination in all Scotland who does not hold the duty of the entire sanctification of the Lord's day? Did you ever meet with a lively believer in any country under heaven? One who loved Christ and lived a holy life, who did not delight in keeping holy to God the entire day. And so on and so forth. Tangible holiness. Well, I don't just love the Lord's Day, but I love Robert Murray McShane's I Love the Lord's Day. And uh, I commend it to your reading and your rereading. The reason... I'm reading this here at the beginning and not at the end, although we will come back to it time and again. This is one of my primary resources. It's because I'm answering the question now here at the beginning, why have such a study? Well, I I, I was answering that question. Why study the Sabbath? Because we love the Lord's Day and because the Lord's Day belongs to Him. And it is a day of blessing and it is a day uh, in which God's people are made 
and practice true holiness. And so it is part, as uh, we saw last time as well, it is part of the abiding testimony of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now, someone was asking me this in the, in the midst of the week, and I don't remember uh, who or in what setting, but the OPC is not the only one. There are others. There are other Sabbath-keeping denominations, but typically uh, they are small, unfortunately. And if you remember last time, we saw how really in the turn of the 20th century, Presbyterians ceased to defend the Sabbath, and they gave in to that broader spirit of pragmatism, and they, they relented and yielded to a new conception of time and of the week and even of work itself with secularization and industrialization and all of that. Um, there was a small group of Presbyterians that didn't, though. And among them was the Orthodox Presbyterians led by J. Gresham Machen and men like John Murray. If you ever read Murray on the Sabbath, it's remarkable. He had a very, very high view of the Sabbath. And yet, would you believe, it's just kind of a funny aside, that he could not be a minister in the, in the denomination he grew up in, uh, the Free Presbyterians, because he did not hold a high enough view of the Sabbath. Uh, did you know that, Glenn? Oh, well, there you go. I always try to see if I know something Glenn knows. I usually, I, I usually don't, I can't get him, but I got him there. Uh, yeah, let's soak that one in. So that, I mean, Murray is truly a remarkable defender of the Sabbath, um, but, but it, it's, it's somewhat ironic that, uh, that he was unable to, to be a minister in that denomination. So he ultimately, uh, in, in our favor, became a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, as well as a professor at Westminster. But he was very active in preaching. All right, that's why we're studying it. That's the value of this. Let me uh, move on to another, and we're still just introducing the subject. I don't know if we'll even get beyond that this time. I, I had used a book by Terry Johnson. I don't remember the exact title, but it, it, was, it was something about reformed worship. I don't remember the exact title. But his little book on family worship is, is really quite useful. And, and some of you may remember we had a study on family worship uh, a few years ago, it was 2019, 2018. It was a long time ago. Uh, but this is, this is a great resource. I bought this book when that study was going on. I was struck in reading the introduction. There's a lot of implications, actually, practically for this church that that introduction uh, led to. Um, in my own reading and our session's understanding of, uh, let us call it, the rhythm of the week. And the, the place of the church in the rhythm of that week. Uh, so he's not just describing family worship, but he's describing the flow and the rhythm of the week, which is what the Sabbath is about. It's about not just the one, but the seven. Six days you shall labor, but the, but the seventh you shall keep unto the Lord. So uh, th- this, is, this is something we have to realize, that the fourth commandment is as much about the whole week as it is about the one day. Please realize this. And, and, and I think the, the introduction of this book is the best practical defense of the rhythm of that week that we can find. So, one of the things he does in the beginning is that he describes the death of the family. And the death of the family looks like this. Endless busyness. We're just busy all the time. We're not at home. We're not together. We're not sitting around the dinner table. When would we even have family worship? This is something that we're facing. Uh, as a congregation. It's something that, that we face as a family, my own, my own family. 
What he says is, is tragic, though, is that the church has actually contributed to that. <laughs> the church uh, is, has busy activities throughout the weeks, and it, it fills people's schedule, uh, and, and, and it keeps people away from home. They're not sitting around the dinner table. There's no time to be quiet and to sit at the Father's feet, as, as, as is pictured in Deuteronomy, and for him to open the Bible and to read the word to his family. And you may even then sing a psalm. We've started doing that. But when would you ever do that? And does the church take that into account? Well, he talks about the ancient paths, the old way of doing things, which admittedly was easier in the older form of community life. It used to be the case that you could walk to church and you could walk to school and you could walk to the soccer fields. We have to drive 30 minutes across town to get to the soccer fields. (laughs) It's one of the things we're busy doing during the weeks. It takes 20 minutes to drive to church. Some of you, it's longer. We're very spread out here in Tallahassee. So what he was saying really resonated with me. That, that old way of life is gone, sadly. Uh, the, the, the ease of getting to places. But, but just recognize that in that old way of living, there are things that we can still hold on to. And there were two things that we can hold on to. He talks about the home as sacred. The home as sacred. Let me see if I can find a quote, uh, because this is a strong point that he makes. Uh, I don't don't think I can. Anyways, let, let let me keep pushing through this point. The second thing he says is that, oh, there it is, I found it. He said, once the home was a castle, a place of refuge for the family, when behind its doors the family conducted its affairs without interruption and without outside influence, sacrosanct family time is violated daily. I skipped down. He's talking about the situation today. When does life slow down enough so that we can talk? Where do we experience community? We have wonderful toys today, but they've cost us too much. Growing prosperity and technological advancement do not necessarily or automatically mark human progress. Then he goes on to explain how the church has failed to grapple with that reality and in fact has contributed to the process. People are never home. They're never together. They're never quiet to think and meditate upon God's word. The ancient paths require the sacredness of the home, but also he says the family pew. I I love that way of describing things. I think we do hold on to that very well in this church. And the the idea of that is not that, uh, you know, you you have a designated pew. And if a visiting family is sitting there, you say, you need to move. That's our pew. That's not what we're talking about. People have been known to do that. But the idea, rather, is that fitting into that older picture where the home is sacred and the family's gathering around the word daily and meditating on the word And the children from the earliest days can remember their father and their mother instructing them uh, in the word. But, but, But the family's time in worship is also sacred. Together. We're worshiping as a family. We're we're making church a priority. Uh, I don't remember which family it was. It was that old couple that when I when I came here. Oh, who was it? Uh, that the old couple couple, the Godfreys. Uh, yeah, and they their attitude was we're we're the Godfreys we're we're in church that's that's what we do, and uh, and I remember that that stuck with me. Well, we're the Sharps we're in church. We don't miss church. We may be traveling, but we're in church. That's what we do. 
This isn't just, you know, fulfilling a duty. It's so much more than that. It's, it's who we are. And so the idea is that, again, fitting into that broader picture, we see this as essential to our spiritual life as a family. Not just the time that we have in the home, but the time that we have in church. And, and really, nothing can get in the way of that. We, 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 we as a family cannot afford to let that go. He says, I, I really may fill up the time with this Terry Johnson, my summary of this, this introduction. It's so good. Um, he says, how does this commitment to public worship relate to the family's spiritual well-being? Speaking of uh, the family pew, he says, when your children are brought with you into public worship, they too are sanctified. Your children from the earliest years will be ushered along with you into the presence of God. They will be brought under the means of grace and will experience the fellowship of God's people week after week as they mature through childhood. Going uh, further, he says, well, uh, let, me, let me finish that paragraph. He says, do not underestimate the cumulative effect of this witness upon covenant children. And then he goes on to say this. The key to your own family... Your own family's spiritual health is remarkably simple. It requires no week-long or weekend retreats, seminars, or special program. It depends on no special techniques or novel methodologies. You won't have to spend yet another night out. That's why we decided to kill the Wednesday night, by the way. So I said this had implications for everything. In prioritizing these ancient paths, we didn't want to intrude upon your family time. Don't tell me we didn't have time to worship, do family worship on, on Wednesday night because you had to rush out to church after a busy day. Nope. You won't have to spend another night out. You won't need to add more meetings to an already frantic schedule. The key is to be found in regular, ordinary, weekly services in the church. And that brings him to talk about the priority of the Lord's Day. So fitting into that paradigm of the home and the pew is the centrality of the Lord's Day. In its failure, he says, to recognize this, that is the busyness and, the, and, and the, the failure of people to be at home, he says, the church is little better than the world in unnecessarily contributing to the frenetic pace of modern life. What can we do? Slow down. Stay home. Quit running mindlessly all over town. Limit yourself and do this. Commit yourself to the Lord's day in the Lord's house and little else outside of the home will be necessary for the cultivation of a thriving spiritual life. He goes on to describe, now he was schooled by Hughes Oliphant Old, and Hughes Oliphant Old describes this in, in a later lesson, I plan to go through this, that, uh, that the Puritans, for them, they called, the, does anyone know what uh, the Puritans called uh, the, the Sabbath or the Lord's Day? It was the market day of the soul. So we're not, we're not uh, going to, to have a weekly Wednesday night. I mean, we may, uh, if, if there was enough demand for that. It's possible. But, uh, but that's not part of the current program. But we are going to say, fill up your, your, your six days, wear yourself out, devote yourself to your family. But on this day, did I say what it was, by the way? The market day of the soul. Uh, this is the day when you will do your transactions with God's people and with God himself in public worship. So it's a busy day. We fill the day. We have Sunday school. We have morning worship. We have evening worship. It's the market day of the soul. Six days a week, he says, 
One buys and sells for the sake of one's body. Sunday, however, we are to trade in spiritual commodities for the sake of our souls. All secular labors are to be set aside. Secular employment, secular recreations. Give yourself fully to me, God says, on this day. The sanctity of the Lord's day. He says, people used to live this way. We're the first generation, I'm quoting him again, of American Protestants who have forgotten the benefits of the Sabbath command. Prior to the middle of this century, all American Protestant denominations were Sabbatarian. This was true for over 350 years. But once again, he says, well, until the mid-1960s, once again, we've become too clever for our own good. We've crammed our schedules full of activities seven days a week. We've lost our Sabbath rest in the process. What if we given up? Hughes Old has recently written, any attempt at recovering a reformed spirituality would do well carefully to study the best of Puritan literature on observance of the Lord's Day. In other words, if we are truly reformed and we believe in the ongoing uh, applicability of God's moral law, as well as the depravity of man, we will see the value of keeping the Sabbath day holy. Essentially, it comes down to this. I'm going to keep reading. If you are not convinced the whole of Sunday is the Lord's and not yours, you will not be consistent. You will inevitably allow other matters to interfere. Things will come up. Even the best of us will become, he says, this is memorable. There's a lot of memorable lines in this. The best of us will become three-fifths Christians. Three out of five Sundays we will be in church. The other two we will be out of town, watching a ball game, traveling, entertaining out-of-town guests, slightly under the weather. That one makes me smile. I call that the Sunday cold. Preparing, uh, which magically disappears on Monday morning. Preparing for a busy Monday, out too late on Saturday. Some of you need to hear that. And so on. Let me challenge you, he says. Count it up. You might be surprised at how much you miss. Though you see yourself as there every Sunday, you miss two out of five. Well, that's not true of this church, thank God. That part is certainly not true. But generally speaking, in the American church, it is. Return for Sunday night worship. Forget it. It's once a month at best, even for many of us who are members of the few churches that still conduct Sunday night services. Again, thankfully not true of us. If Sunday is not the Lord's Day, who is going to bother? So he says the cumulative effect of this is, is significant. Instead of the ministry of 104 Sunday services, morning and evening each Sunday, one drops to another 40, uh, one drops to under, I mean 45 30 Sunday mornings and about 12 Sunday nights. How do you propose to make it up? The best of us will seek to compensate by adding midweek spiritual commitments. This will help, but only at the cost of hyping up one's schedule in the process. But do you see what he's proposing? If you give yourself to Sabbath worship two Bible sermons every Sunday, that's 104 sermons you listen to. Does the church really need to ask any more of you? And for that matter, do you need to ask any more of your pastor? Give yourself, you have, the Lord gave you six days to do all of your work, all of your recreations, to worship in the home. But give yourself to him on Sunday. Uh, take up the full opportunity that the church is giving you. And the benefit is enormous. And as he says, if you don't, how do you propose to make up for it? If you're convinced going on that Sunday is the market day of the soul, then it changes everything. And this is where he talks about the rhythm of the week. Eliminating options helps because Sunday worship is an inflexible given. Everything else has to accommodate to it. 
The fourth commandment tends thereby to cast its influence over the rest of the week. Life has been organized around one's Sunday obligations. Shopping, travel, business, yard work, housework, recreation, all must be finished by Saturday evening. Sunday must be cleared of all secular obligations. The blessed consequence is not only that one is free to worship twice on the Lord's Day, but one also enjoys guilt-free, refreshing rest from the concerns and labors of life. That's a beautiful picture. That's the old view. That's the ancient path. That's what we ought to hold to. Uh, David and I were joking the other day about whether filling your tank on Sunday was an ox-in-the-ditch situation, but I argued that it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you may have to do it, but you really ought to chide yourself and say, I could have done this yesterday. Did I really need to do this? Did I have to contribute to this gas station being open on Sunday when I could have just as easily filled it on Saturday? So you just begin to think of things differently. Uh, I'm not going to drive by and stop and say, you know, congregant, what, what, <laughs> could you not have done this Saturday? I'm not suggesting that. I'm just, use, I'm just using that as an illustration. You, you think about your week differently. You begin to think, even in how you speak to yourself, Could, couldn't I have done this last night? That sort of thing. So it casts the whole week in a different, in a different light. Now, just to complete the thought from the introduction... You see where family worship fits in. You have six days to do the old, that, that old thing I was telling you about, the sacred family time. And let not the church interfere with that. That is what I would call, and I think this is in quotations in my notes, so it must be from there. Or maybe it's in quotations just because it's a, it's a phrase. I'm not sure. But this is the simpler life that he's talking about. Slow down. Slow down. Let me make another observation, and uh, and there goes the time again, and I'm still on this first sheet, so, uh, but at least we'll get to lesson two next time. Something that I've observed, which is remarkable, is the connection between the Sabbath and revival, at least in, in connection to the first great awakening. Uh, you can read, as, as uh, Glenn was sharing, the life of, uh, of David Brainerd, uh, his diary and his journals. Uh, his journals are really where it's at. If you ever pick them up, pick that, that copy up, I would start with the journals and read the diary second. Uh, the journal is his account of the revival among the Indians that happened during this time, the First Great Awakening. But as he, as he, he catalogs the, the change that occurred among these Indians who had no exposure to any of this before he had begun to preach to them was the carefulness in keeping the Sabbath. Uh, now, that's just one example. As you study the First Great Awakening, you notice that one of the discernible marks of revivals and the wonderful change that the Spirit brings about in communities is that, is that they begin to carefully keep the Sabbath. And if you state that positively, although I think I did just state it positively, but, but we tend to think of the Sabbath negatively, they just delight to be in Christian fellowship and in worship. And, and they really can't get enough. Uh, I, I, I love to tell the story of you know, the Reformation in, in Wittenberg, at least, and this is common. They had three services on Sunday and then daily services through the week. <laughs> now, if the church is at the center of town, you could stop at lunch and go to service or something like that. I realize that's not as feasible today, but there there was a great revival in Wittenberg, and they had three, three worship services. Incredible. Uh, so I don't know how many they had in Geneva. I'm assuming it's two. But I actually don't know the answer to that. But I, I, was struck, I was struck by the fact that they had so many in Wittenberg. So 
when revival pours out, the Sabbath becomes prominent again in the life of God's people. And they really begin to delight in it. It becomes to them, as Murray McShane says, a kind of heaven on earth. That's what revival is. So the goal of the, the goal of the study, I was supposed to say this at the end of last time, the goal of the study is this, in light of everything I've said, to revive in this church a desire to keep the Sabbath holy. Precisely what Murray McShane says, Robert Murray McShane, constrained to lift up, I feel, and I'm, I'm saying this in my own voice, I feel constrained to lift up my voice in behalf of the entire sanctification of the Lord's Day. It's God's law. It's His commandment. It's His will for His people. And to see the fourth commandment as a source of constant blessing to man, not as a hindrance to our well-being, but as the ultimate promoter of our well-being. Now, are there any questions at that point? Hopefully it's fairly straightforward. Let me take about five minutes to, to get into my second lesson and I think I think this would be something uh, that I that would be a worthwhile conclusion at this point having read Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3 what we see there is the first Sabbath and who was it who rested on that Sabbath the Lord it was the Lord who rested on that Sabbath so if the first lesson was uh, the, well, just general introduction, I'm beginning here a historical survey, which will also in, which will include the Bible, but also uh, some of, of the history, uh, such as the early church, the period of the Reformation, and America, early America and modern America, the history of the Sabbath. This is what we're beginning, and uh, I, don't, I don't know how long... It'll take us to get through this, but we can at least look at the first Sabbath, that creation. This is an important point for us to grasp because the Sabbath is called, can any, anyone anticipate how I'm going to finish this sentence? It is called a, a creation ordinance. When did God institute the Sabbath? It wasn't at Sinai. It was when he founded the world. And he built his rhythm into the whole of human, human life, which is why, you know, it's remarkable. People give up their Sabbaths, but they haven't given up their weeks. They don't just say, well, you know, I'm in an endless week. I'm not even going to call, you know, today Sunday or whatever. They still break it up into the pattern of the seven. Where do you find the pattern of the seven? At the beginning of the world. And it's in that that the one in seven as distinct is established. So again, the Sabbath has as much to do with the whole of the week as it has to do with the one day. The way to learn the importance and God's will and his plan for Sabbath keeping is to go back to the beginning. Remember the Sabbath day, he says to the Israelites. Why did he say, why would you start a new commandment with remember? You would never do that. He's talking about something that's as old as the world. And that continues to be the way he addresses his people. Remember the Sabbath day. Well, remember what God was doing at the beginning when he instituted it and he entered his own Sabbath. Remember, there's a Sabbath for God and he's presently enjoying it. What do we see on that first Sabbath? And what was that Sabbath like? 
Well, as I've been saying, it was a day for God, first and foremost. That's where we have to begin, God's Sabbath. But it was also, therefore, a day which never ended for God. In other words, he's still enjoying it. It's, it's interesting when you read that. The first six days, there was evening and there was morning. The first day, there was evening and there was morning. The, s- the second day and so on. That doesn't occur on the seventh day. Because there was no e- morning and evening. This was a day for God which never ended. He entered into his Sabbath rest. And what does God do on his Sabbath? He rests in the sense that he has finished his work and he's begun to enjoy it. He is delighting in the work of creation. He has ceased to create and he has begun to enjoy But he continues, number two, a work of another kind. Jesus, when the Pharisees found fault with him for working on the Sabbath, he says, you know, my father works even till now, even as I work. Well, what what is the work the father is doing on the Sabbath? The Jews had this idea that Sabbath meant total inactivity. And Jesus said, what are you talking about? Don't you know God entered his Sabbath on the seventh day of creation? And he's been working the whole time. He rested from a certain kind of labor, but he took up another kind. And what was that work? Could, it, could anyone make a guess? We don't have to finish this point today. We're about done. But what, what, what is the work that God has taken up? There's two main points I have in my mind, but let's see, let's see what you guys think. That's one. Salvation. What's the second? Think especially about his relationship to the world he has made. Preservation. Preservation. That's the exact word I was looking for. So he still cares for his world. That's Jesus' point. Why, why wouldn't I heal this person on the Sabbath? Is that not the work of God on his Sabbath? To care for his work of creation? Uh, but also, uh, connected with that same point, bringing the work of salvation. And, and wouldn't it be fitting on this of all days to demonstrate the works of God and the works of saving men? Let me hurry through these, these, uh, these two Final points about God's rest, and we will we will pick up we'll pick up under this point next time. He invites us to join him in his rest as the goal of our earthly existence. He gives man. Uh, well, hold on, that's the fourth point. So God, so he sets not just the Sabbath. Uh, well, let me see here. He doesn't just enter his Sabbath at the end of his work week, but in doing so, he invites humanity to join him. To enter our Sabbath rest as the goal. That's the goal he sets before Adam. You say, well, what if Adam hadn't eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What would have happened? He would have entered his Sabbath rest. That's the answer. That's the goal he set before Israel in the wilderness, Psalm 95. I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. That's what God says. And that's the goal that he sets forth for the church. Entering God's Sabbath rest. His heavenly life. So that's the goal of our earthly existence. So it's not just the rhythm of the week. It's the whole plan of history. And the goal which God sets before the church going back to the beginning. That we would, unlike Israel, enter his rest. Again, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. That's quoted in Hebrews 3, Psalm 95. But... The other thing God does, and we'll end on this slide, I think this is a fitting point of conclusion. He sets up the earthly Sabbath and the weekly Sabbath as an earthly and weekly foretaste and reminder 
of God's Sabbath as the goal promised to his church if they do not fall away in unbelief. And it is that day that he is blessed and he is hallowed. All right, we'll close with that. We'll pick up under this point next time. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, so many rich and wonderful resources which we can dig into on the Sabbath. So many, uh, well, it's been such a concern of, of our forefathers. And we pray, even though it's been lost in our land, that we might revive it, if only in this church, and begin to be salt and light on this commandment and this blessing. And it's so much more than a commandment, Lord. It, it really is the structure of our whole existence and the goal of our existence and the great motive which you set before the church in her faithfulness, that she might not fall away, but that she might indeed endure to the end and enter into your heavenly Sabbath rest. Dear God, would you give us now this day a foretaste of these things and cause us even to begin to enjoy in a small way heaven upon earth in this place. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.